In this episode of Splainin', Jeff explains the Waco, Texas siege. Some retellings of graphic and horrific events may be a trigger for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on to the episode. You got some Splainin'. You got some Splainin'. You got some. You got some. Welcome to Splainin', a podcast where two guys explain things to each other that they should know, but they don't. I am Evan Smith. And I am Jeff Sims. Welcome, Jeff, to this episode 15? 15? Evan, I'm not sure, buddy. I'm just going to stop you for a second. Please do. Buddy, you're looking some handsome. And let me tell you why. That shirt's some lovely. Yes, it is. <laughs> it is lovely. I do need a little bit of a haircut. Yes. So surprised that you said it. But it is a lovely shirt. I haven't worn this one in a while. I normally wear my You've Got Some Splainin' To Do shirt. I was going to say, it's feel like, uh, the reason why I'm bringing it up, it feels like it's been a while since I've seen it. Like the Splainin' shirt? Yes. Yes. I feel like, I, I've, well, we were pushing it for so long we had it, but I haven't seen one in a while. Tell me, do we have any left? I think we've got a scattered few in, okay. in the archives. Interesting. Uh, I'm going to go back and have a look. So on that note, if you, if you still want a shirt, uh, let us know. They're fresh. They're in a, or they're, they're, they're musty. They're, they're in a well-circulated area, wherever they are. Um, <laughs> funnily enough, I had a conversation about the Splainin' t-shirts today. Did you actually? I did. I had a meeting with my financial advisor who <laughs> bought one of the so, shirts. So, Evan, to reach your financial goals, you need to sell 6000 thousand more t-shirts <laughs> well you know johnny i do know johnny. like literally the first thing he was like he's like how's the podcast yeah <laughs> and i was, was like he's like don't worry we're gonna sell it for 10 million to spotify in about five years <laughs> like johnny you're right we are um but he bought a t-shirt uh months ago does he wear it to every one of your meetings he said he's like funnily enough lost the t-shirt you gave me the second you gave it to me and i was like what do you mean lost he's like my girlfriend took it. he's like i've never worn it once my girlfriend took it and she wears it all the time he's like meanwhile it is lovely to be able to see it because yeah. it's a lovely work of art so it's like, i can see it all the time but i've never got a chance to wear it it's funny the same thing happened we went to hope for birdie last yes. year which is the golf tournament that yep. you and i are going to go to soon and i gave jake his shirt at the beginning of that weekend. Yeah. And he wore it for the full first practice round. Yep. And then lost it on the golf course the second round due to inebriation. Uh, indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Inebriation. Inebriation. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it is a stylish looking shirt. Even if you don't know what Splain it is. Like, I feel mm. like it just the color palette. Yeah. Is nice. Yeah, it's, it's a lovely pink, white, gold on a black canvas t-shirt? of yeah I was, I was thinking about i didn't know what word to use deep dark Ooh. intoxication it's well fitted <laughs> thank you jeff evan, I, you... I have put on a little weight because <laughs> 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 it makes evan look jacked well funny story originally when i got my slain and t-shirt i had a medium <laughs> i don't want to hear the rest of the sentence now it's a large <laughs> oh yeah got to go but that's okay buddy you know why I don't. Because you're a handsome man. <laughs> you're handsome. If you're handsome, you can be fat. <laughs> no shaming, just None. a fact. Just a fact, yeah. And you got a lovely um, Evan Smith in the Goblet of Fire hair going on. I really do. You really it's do. bringing me right back to like grade 10, grade uh-huh. 9, grade 10, where like the windswept look, like I don't have curly hair. When it gets so long, it starts to flip. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very Daniel Radcliffe circa 2008. 
Is that when the Goblet of Fire came out? Oh, I don't know, Jeff. I'll be I'm pulling so numbers out impressed. of my hole. I would be so impressed if that's when the Goblet came out. Look it up. I'm curious. Uh, hey Siri, when did Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire movie become released? Become released? Okay, shut up. 2005. Oh, close. 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 A lot happened between 2005 and 2008. Yeah, couple. I hit puberty for one. <laughs> <laughs> when did when did the when did the uh, music video for "Dirty" by Christina Aguilera come out? Because that's <laughs> that's when you hit puberty. That was a defining point for when I hit puberty. <laughs> it forced my body into puberty. I wasn't ready. Uh, none of us were. No, we weren't. But anyways, um, here we are. I have one correction from last week. Oh, do you? Um, and it's a very small correction, but I wanted to say it because I wanted to get ahead of the vultures. Who I'm like, Evan, you're a literal buffoon. Ugh. Um, King Henry VIII, while I was talking about him, sure. I said, I referenced a date, and I was like, yeah, um, 1932, he started this thing where, like, the church became, yeah. obviously it's not 1932. No. It was 1532. Oof. Very small detail, but you didn't notice it, I didn't notice it. I don't want somebody to be like, mis- miseducation of the class systems. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not going to like these. So oh, I do have, no. I actually had a lot of corrections that I completely <laughs> forgot about. <laughs> A lot? Uh, for me? Four. I had four. Four for me. Uh, no, not all for you. Okay. Um, so the first one was me. Mm-hmm. So we talked about um, Richard Kind. Remember not, the actor? Not ringing a bell. Richard we, Kind? Yeah. Um, who was in... Um, the Kind. Yes. God, <laughs> I wish I remember the conversation. God, why... Oh, the, the, the actor who played uh, Octo- Doc Ock in... His name is not Richard Kind. Oh, no, Alfred Molina. Correct. Yes, yeah, sorry. This is the confusion. Okay. So Alfred Molina plays, or Molina, whatever you want to say. Yeah, I would say Molina, but go sure. ahead. Uh, he played Doc Ock in Spider-Man. And yes. remember, I said, I was like, is that the guy who played Kimmy Schmidt? And you were like, I don't know. Right. The actor who I'm thinking of is Richard Kind. Show me a picture. I have a comparable picture. I photoshopped the two of them together. Don't they uh, look similar? Yeah, but they're both famous enough that I would definitely tell them apart. Really? They have such a similar facial structure. For those of you uh, listening, I'm going to put it up on our uh, Instagram uh, maybe Saturday, then tomorrow. Tomorrow. When you guys are listening, I'm going to put it up tomorrow so tomorrow you guys know what Saturday. I'm talking about. Oh, you're talking in terms when of, this the, releases, of yeah. the listener's reality. Exactly. I see. Yes. Thank you. They are on good. a different timeline than us. And they are. And they are. And they should be. So that was my first uh, mistake. Okay. So also, this is another kind of a timeline mix up for you. Okay. So uh, Britain didn't fight the Nazis in World War One, which is what you said. They fought Germany in World War One yeah, due World to War the II. assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Yeah, and the skipper who, for the life of him, couldn't swim above three <laughs> inches of water. Yeah. Um, but Was I talking about World War One? Yes. So you were talking in the early 1912s, 13s when you're talking about your topic, and you made you were saying how Britain fought the Nazis. Uh, but they didn't. So when Germany lost World War One, they went to financial turmoil, and the morale was at an all-time low. These conditions are what allowed the Nazi Party to gain power and support, and gain support. Sorry, in 1933, which led into World War Two. I must have meant to say World War Two. No, because your timeline was World War One. No, the, yeah. it happened all through the 1900s. Uh-huh. My timeline of the IRA. Yes, but what you were talking about was during the 1910s. Well, there were no Nazis in 1910s. I know. That's why it's a correction, Evan. <laughs> well, then where did I get Nazis I from? I don't know, buddy. I obviously combined some information from World War I and II. Obviously. But there must have been something about Britain and fighting Nazis in World War II. Yes. Well, obviously, I- the 
Britain fought the Nazis in World no, War II. No, I know, II. but uh, the information I was saying must have had something to do with World War II, because why would I have brought up Nazis? Maybe. I, I, let's, we all know. I plagiarized everything. Yeah. So I didn't insert Nazis myself. Yeah, so remember when we were talking about the barricades? Yes. Excuse me. Um, so and the barricades on something. <laughs> I don't know what the words are. <laughs> As they tear your hole apart. As they tear your hole apart. And they turn your dreams to shit. What money on my own? Okay, we gotta stop. We Can't. don't, but we should. We should. Um, we confuse the word acme. Acme? A-C-M-E. Acme. Like the one that like drops the uh, anvils if you're a roadrunner? Yeah, maybe. Okay. Um, so we didn't know what the word meant. We were like, what does that mean? We're like, I don't know. What does it mean? Who we're said like, it and when? Uh, it was about the blocking of the army's acmes. What? Exactly. During I the was talking about it? Yes, because you're talking about the barricades. I don't think I did. Anyways, we <laughs> use the phrase, and it means the highest point. So it makes more sense. What? The word acme means highest point. So in reference to the sentence, it's blocking the army's acmes. A-C-M-E-S. I don't understand. It's okay. Let's move on. Then what's the correction then? It's not a correction. It's we didn't know what the word meant. We acme. Spent A-C-M-E. Yeah, I don't remember it. Buddy. I have zero recollection. Okay. All right, okay. Well, what anyways, else you got? That's it. Thank God. That was a snooze fest. I'm glad it's over. Oh. <laughs> One day more. Uh, Freak you then. Um, yeah, I don't remember Acme. So uh, Acme means the highest point? Is that what yes. You yes. Okay. Did we talk about barricades? Yes, we must have talked about There were barricades. Yeah, the IRA. Yes. Um, or whatever. When they had dairy, free dairy, yeah. they made barricades so they kept the police out of dairy. Yes. But I don't remember talking about Acme. Yes. Well, because it was just a word. I just the passed by it and I was like, I don't know what that means. Yeah. I was like, what, do you, what does that mean? You're like, I don't know. And then we, uh, went, we went back and talked about it. We didn't talk about it. Just when I listened, I was like, hmm, I'm going to Google that. And well done. Thanks. Um, What do you think? Do you want to learn something today, my friend? Oh, I'm a little tired, Jeff. It's probably for the best. Yeah. Because so this one is a rocky one. Oh, is it? In it. Is it going to wake me right up? Yeah. All right. Giddy up, Miss On. Let's go to Waco, Texas. Evan and Jeff and the boys. And girls and all listeners who we are equally inclusive to. Mostly women because it's statistically proven that 80% of the <laughs> listeners explaining the podcast actually are women. <laughs> and we support you and think you are equal parts of society. And we love you all. Usually more than men. Yeah. Dun da. <laughs> <laughs> so this week I'm talking about the Waco siege. It is a siege. It is. A siege. I said siege earlier. And you made fun of me. I did not make fun of you. I. I. You're like siege. I took the Acme Road. <laughs> <laughs> you should take the back road out of here now. <laughs> Good one, bye. Thanks. Uh, all right. So it all began. On a cold winter's eve. <laughs> Tell me it's not today when you were talking about it. Let's we should preface this by saying today we had three or four phone conversations where we tried to brainstorm a way to get out of doing research this week. <laughs> because two of us finished our research at research at seven o'clock. And it is now 8:30. <laughs> um because we just didn't do it and we procrastinated and we didn't want to be at it. No. But 
I was like, Jeff, just double down and tell me a story. And just saying, not to interrupt, but the first stanza so far has been delightful. Well. Keep it up. <laughs> let's not let's get our expectations out of line. Okay. okay, so it all began on a cold winter's eve with the birth and coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Did it? No. Oh. Well, kind of. Not really. They're all very, very religious. Yes. Okay. So yeah. it did begin there. Great. Kind of. Um, so the Branch Davidians, do you know much about them? No. Sure. Uh, or, <laughs> sure. They're the, ge- or otherwise known as the General Association of Branch Davidian Seventh-day Adventists. Oh, I do know about Seventh-day Adventists. Oh, do you? Yes. yes. When Cochrane was under renovation, um, like when I first was musical director of Cochrane Street United, um, the church was under renovation because it was literally falling down, and we were at the Seventh-day Adventist. Yeah. they worship on Saturdays, so we could have it for Sunday mornings. Yeah, so they are a religious sect uh, which was founded in 1955 by Benjamin Rodin. So the Seventh-day Adventists are not created in 1955, but this... This branch of them. Branch uh, Davidian. Okay. Yeah. Or Davidians. Davidians. Like David. David I-A-N-S. Davidians. I like it. I think it makes it rolls off the tongue better that way. And it does. Yeah. So it was invented in 1955 by Benjamin Rodin. Okay? okay. They were an offshoot of the General Association of Davidian Seventh-day Adventists, established by Victor Houtif in 1935. Mm-hmm. So Houtif, a Bulgarian immigrant and a Seventh-day Adventist, wrote a series of tracts entitled The Shepherd's Rod. What's a which- track? Series of tracts. T-R-A-C-T-S. He wrote a series of tracts. T-R-A-C-T-S. Maybe uh, books, periodicals. <laughs> well done. You haven't used that word since fourth year. Honestly. Uh, entitled The Shepherd's Rod, which called for the reform of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which his ideas were rejected by Adventist leaders. Okay. Houtif and his followers founded the Davidians um, and settled on a tract of land, which is ironic. because Why do you keep saying tract? There's no know. second T. There is. T-R-A-C-T. Tract of Tree- land. T-R-A-C-T? Tract. Oh, I thought land. you were saying track weirdly. Tract of land. Okay. On the western outskirts of Waco, Texas, United States. Okay. Where they built a compound called the Mount Carmel Center and began preparing for the second coming. Were they? Mm. Mm. After Houtif's death in 1955, his wife Florence became... did they just start in 1955? He Na- died the same year. No, no, no. So, by you're listening at all? So Houtif began it in 1935. Benjamin Rodin took it over in 1955. Uh, so after Houtif's death in 1955, his wife Florence became the leader of the Davidians. Okay. That same year, Rodin, who we just talked about, a former follower of Houtif, uh, who called himself The Branch, okay. called for Davidians to come to Mount Carmel Center to hear his message. Okay. This was the beginning of the group that would be popularly known, popularly known <laughs> as the Branch Davidians. Okay. Because he was known as Branch. Yes, video. as you said. Yeah. <laughs> I was afraid you weren't listening because of the last three sentences I said. You In my defense, I was listening. Were you? I'm just confused all the time. Can't confirm. <laughs> In 1981, a young man named Vernon Howell, later known as David Koresh, mm, or mm. Koresh, came to Mount Carmel and studied biblical prophecy under Louise Roden. By 1984, the core group of Davidians shifted their allegiance from Lewis's or Lois's son, George, to Koresh. 
Okay. Okay. So David Koresh, who is the main person in this story. So okay. Strap in. He's a good dude. Well, he's not a good dude. He's a terrible dude. Uh, but he's a good story. He- <laughs> so David Koresh was born Vernon Wayne Howell. Okay. On August 17th, 1959, in Houston, sure. Texas, to a 14-year-old single mother, Bonnie Sue Clark. Woof, welcome and, to Texas. And father, Bobby Wayne Howell. Yeah. So before Koresh was born, his father met another teenaged girl and abandoned Bonnie Sue. She began cohabiting with a violent alcoholic. In 1963, Koresh's mother left with her boyfriend and placed her four-year-old son in the care of his maternal grandmother, Airline Clark. His mother, Airline? E-A-R-L-I-N-E. Airline. Or Erline. Sure. Yeah. Um, his mother returned when he was seven, after her marriage to a carpenter named Roy Haldeman. Like Joseph. Mm. From the Bible. Like from the Bible. <laughs> um, so... Koresh described his early childhood as lonely. Okay. Due to his poor study skills and dyslexia, he was put in special education classes and was nicknamed Vernie by his fellow students. Koresh dropped out of Garland High School in his junior year. So, let's just say he didn't have a fantastic childhood. His mother was 14 when she had him, abandoned him, left him with his grandmother, returned with another husband. Mm. And he's just not having a good go of it. He wasn't feeling particularly loved and cherished as a like. He wasn't someone special little boy, which is just really sad. It is really everyone sad. should be someone special little boy. Oh yeah, man. It really should be just uh, someone should hold them. <laughs> <laughs> so when he was 19 years old, Korish had an illegal sexual relationship with a 15 year old girl who became pregnant. The other relationships were illegal. Because he was young, I guess. He didn't have any relationships up until this point. You just said he married a 14-year-old. No, no, no. That was his... his No, no, no. So his mother was 14 when she had him. Yes. His father left one 14-year-old to go to another 14-year-old. Yes. So all illegal. Oh, but we're, not talking, we're talking about his stepfather now. No, no. Now we're actually talking about Koresh. Before, we were talking about his actual Who's father. Koresh? Koresh. Who's that? Buddy. He's the guy we've been talking about. Oh, that's his script. last name. We're George. No. Who's David? Oh, man. This is the worst it has ever been. You just introduced me to a family of humans. I'm not expecting to know them all by name already. If I was at a dinner party, you'd be like, I'd have to have name tags. Okay, first off, Koresh or Koresh. Okay. He's the son of the 14-year-old whose father left. Exactly. David Koresh. Oh, David. David. Okay. David. Who was George? You're going to be actually introduced to a George very soon. You already told me about a George very soon. (laughs) <laughs> oh man we're gonna have to scrap this whole episode because we're about to scrap in a minute like have a fight yes no we're not i'd never fight you that would be a poor decision yeah for you you get too beat up <laughs> look how buff i am in my splaining shirt <laughs> oh god so anyways shall i keep going so if you must when david Koresh, yeah or Koresh. However you want to pronounce it. I don't care how you say it. You don't have to say it both ways every time. When he was 19 years old, he had an illegal sexual relationship with a 15-year-old girl who became pregnant. Okay. He claimed to have become a born-again Christian in the Southern Baptist Church and soon joined his mother's church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. There, Koresh became infatuated with the pastor's daughter. This is the 15-year-old? Nope, different person. Oh, 
And while praying for guidance, he opened his eyes and allegedly found the Bible opened at Isaiah 34.16, stating that none should want for her mate. Convinced that this was a sign from God, Koresh approached the pastor and told him that God wanted him to have his daughter for a wife. Okay. The pastor threw him out, and when he continued to persist with his pursuit of the daughter, he was expelled from the congregation. Okay. Which makes sense. Yep. Uh, in 1983... <laughs> Leave my grade 10-year-old alone. Yeah, honestly. In 1983, Koresh began uh, claim... Sorry. He claimed he had the gift of prophecy. Okay. Uh, David uh, Thibodeo, which is a great name. And it is. Thibodeo. <laughs> Uh, in his 1999 book, A Place Called Waco, speculated that he had a sexual relationship with Lewis or Lois, sorry, Roden, which was the widow of Benjamin Roden. She was the like the head of the, of the church. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is the first time you've thrown around the word cult, but I felt we were getting there. We were getting warmer, yeah. Okay. Who was then in her late 60s. Okay. So he went from 15 to 60. He was 19 now? Uh, 1983... He's probably in his early 20s. Okay. Uh, so Koresh eventually began to claim that God had chosen him to father a child with Lois. Okay. Who would be the chosen one. I don't think Lois is... I Guesses are Lois is barren by now. <laughs> Poor old Lois. <laughs> well, in 1983, Lois allowed Koresh to begin teaching his own message called The Serpent's Root, which caused controversy in the group. Lois's son, George Roden... George is an actual person I get to listen to, intended to be the actual group's next leader and considered Koresh, or Koresh, an intruder. Why do you keep saying it both ways? I don't know which one it is. Well, me, pick one me, and double down. Me and Catherine got into a dispute on how to pronounce it before I came here. And well, now Catherine's not our only listener most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> so pick one. Koresh. Great. David Koresh. Uh, so anyway, so now we have a dispute between George Roden and David Koresh. Yep. For or Koresh. Or Koresh. <laughs> On who is going to lead the... People. People. Yeah. Yep. So, a fire destroyed a $500,000 administration building. George Roden said Koresh started the fire. On what? Like the land of the, the land, cult? Yeah, okay. Yeah. But Koresh replied that no man set that fire and that it was a judgment of God. Okay. George... <laughs> he would say that, would Yeah, well, I didn't do that. God did that. <laughs> Uh, George forced Koresh and his group off the property at gunpoint. Okay. Koresh and around 25 followers set up camp at Palestine, Texas, okay. where they lived under rough conditions in buses and tents for the next two years. Okay. During this time, Koresh undertook recruitment of new followers in California, the UK, Israel, and Australia. Oh. So as an attempt to regain support, George challenged Koresh. Koresh that's <laughs> that was the third pronunciation now. <laughs> So he challenged him to raise the dead. So, like if you're a prophet. Yes. Okay. So going so far as to dig up a corpse of a two-decade-old deceased Davidian in order to demonstrate his spiritual supremacy. Mm. So this illegal act uh, <laughs> yeah. gave Koresh an, uh, an opportunity to attempt to file charges against George. But he was told that he needed evidence in order to substantiate the, the charges. Right. So on November 3rd, 1987, Koresh and seven of his followers raided Mount Carmel, equipped with five 223-caliber semi-automatic rifles, two 22-caliber rifles, two 12-gauge shotguns, and nearly 400 rounds of ammunition. Sure. 
although Koresh's group claimed that it was trying to obtain evidence of George's illegal activities. With all of those guns, neither of them brought a camera. <laughs> so Koresh's group was discovered by Rodin, and a um, gunfight broke out. When the sheriff arrived, Rodin had already suffered a minor gunshot wound and was pinned down behind a tree. As a result of the incident, Koresh and his followers were charged with attempted murder. Yes. At the trial, Koresh explained that he went to Mount Carmel Center to uncover evidence of criminal disturbance of a, of a corpse by Rodin. Koresh's followers were acquitted, and in uh, Koresh's case, a mistrial was actually declared. Okay. So he kind of went scot-free. Right. In 1989, George murdered Wayman Dale Adair with an axe to the head after Adair stated his belief that he himself was the actual true messiah. George, what are you doing? Honestly. So George was judged insane and confined to a psychiatric hospital at Big Spring, Texas. Okay. Since George owned, oh, sorry, owed thousands of dollars in unpaid taxes on the Mount Carmel Center property, Koresh and his followers were actually able to raise the money and reclaim the property for themselves. Ooh. Koresh was alleged to have been involved in multiple incidents of physical and sexual abuse of children. His doctrine of the House of David did lead him to, we'll call them marriages, with both married and single women in the Branch Davidians. He's married to all these people? Yes. Okay. So on August 5th, 1989, Howell released, or sorry, Koresh, Howell is his... Oh, his, his first name. <laughs> so we got Korish, Korish, Koresh, and now Howell. <laughs> what a silent K. <laughs> uh, so he released The New Light, an audio tape in which he said that God told him to procreate with the women in the group to establish a house of David, of his special people. Okay. This involved separating married couples in the group who had to agree that only he could have sexual relations with the wives, while the men would have to observe celibacy. So, Koresh also said that God had told him to start building an army of God to prepare for the end of days and a salvation for his followers. So, pretty well, he was like, hey, everybody, listen up. I'm asleep with all the women. And all the men, you go grab guns, and you protect me for when the FBI come. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's a... It's a but also, like, if if you were going to announce, hey, hey, guys, just hear me out. Hear me out for a second. I'm going to sleep with all your wives. Here's some weapons. I was going to say, here's a gun. Don't hurt me. Don't shoot me. <laughs> A six-month investigation of sexual abuse allegations by the Texas Child Protection Services in 1999 failed to turn up actually any evidence, possibly because the Branch Davidians concealed the spiritual marriage of Koresh to Michelle by assigning a surrogate husband, David Thibodeau. My favorite person. Thibodeau. Wait, who's Michelle? She's just a random person. That just Who's too young? She's too young. So Koresh married Michelle, but whenever the FBI or the child services came in to investigate, they'd be like, no, she's married to David Thibodeo. Who's not a real person? He's a real person. Is he also there? He's there. Well, then they arrest him. Because he was young enough, too. They're both very young. Oh, like they were just like 14 and 16 and can be married because they're fine. Yep. And why are they there? Their parents are there. No, that's it. So there's there's a string of people who are here. There are people who are like, our whole families are here on this like base, some young people, some strays, 
Like literally, he. I'm not joking. It's like people from everywhere. He would just recruit them based. But like, 15, 16 year olds. Yeah. So just like they left home, they're like, "I'm going, mom. I don't want to live here anymore. Yeah, I'll be further known as Thebadeo <laughs> from this day forward." <laughs> but seriously, and, and he attracted them. He, right. He used to prey on their. That's the thing. On with, their vulnerability. That's the thing with cult leaders. Yeah. And they are usually psychopaths or sociopaths who have incredible ability to manipulate people and that's exactly what he did yeah. and he preyed upon these people and they all stayed there and they worshipped him and they did exactly what he said they think they're living their best life can you imagine somebody having so much power over you that convinced you that you had to stay celibate while they slept with your wife cults are insane insane yeah um so on february 27th 1993 the waco uh Tribune Herald began publishing The Sinful Messiah, a series of articles by Mark England and Darlene McCormick, okay. uh, who reported allegations that Koresh had physically abused children in the compound and had committed statutory rape by taking multiple underage brides. Okay. Koresh was also said to advocate polygamy for himself and declared himself married to several female residents of the small community. Okay. The paper claimed that Koresh had announced he was entitled to at least 140 wives and that he was entitled to claim any of the women in the group as his, that he had fathered at least a dozen children and that some of these mother brides, uh, sorry, some of these mothers became brides as young as 12 or 13 years old. Lord. So it's just like dirty, dirty, dirty stuff. Yeah. So now that we have an idea of Mount Carmel and David Koresh and yep. the Davidian, the Branch Davidians. Yep. Um, let's talk about the siege. Let's talk about the siege. So, sorry, I'm having a sip of the old drink. <laughs> the Waco siege, also known as the Waco Massacre, was carried out by the U.S. federal government between February 28th and April 19th, 1993. That's a long time. 51 days. Yep. They suspected the group of stockpiling illegal weapons. Okay. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, which are three very unrelated things. The ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Why are they unrelated? Like, why have a complete department for, like, maybe alcohol and tobacco, maybe, as like... It's just a, a legal substances? Yeah, but like, alcohol is legal, tobacco is legal, firearms are legal. Right. But why are they all grouped together under the ATF? It's a good question. It just seems like, unless they're all three things that people like to smuggle, like people like to smuggle alcohol I guess that's what it is, yeah. I don't know. It just seems like they're not linked. Right. Anyways, the AFT. You'll hear from them a lot. Okay. So they obtained a search warrant for the compound and arrest warrants for Koresh, as well as a select few of the group's members. Okay. The ATF had been contacted by a local UPS representative concerned about a report by a local UPS driver. Okay. The UPS driver said a package had broken open on delivery to the Branch Davidian residence, revealing firearms, uh, grenades, and black powder. Yikes. On June 9th. How the- do you get that in the mail? Uh, by, I don't know. It goes to Amazon Prime. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> on June 9th, the ATF opened a formal investigation. Okay. On July 30th, ATF agents David Aguilera, which... <laughs> He was a backup dancer in the dirty yeah, he video. Was in dirty, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and Skinner visited uh, the Branch Davidians gun dealer Henry McMahon. 
who tried to get them to talk to Koresh on the phone. Koresh offered to let the ATF inspect the Branch Davidians' weapons and paperwork and asked to speak with Aguilera, but Aguilera declined. The ATF began surveillance from a house across the road from the compound several months before the siege. Okay. How large is this compound? Uh, like it's a community for like how many people are living there? So here's the thing. Uh, a lot of people are living there. Right. But it's too small for the amount of people that are living there. But it's probably bigger than what you think. Okay. Like hundreds of people? Uh, I'd say like between one and two hundred. Okay. Um, and it's small. Like seven people are living in a room. Okay. They share two bathrooms. Right. There's one small kitchen. And a mat. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> Tell me more. How many microwaves do they have? <laughs> Tell me more. Like, do they have a car? Um, so the ATF began surveillance from a house from across the compound several months before the siege. Their cover was noticeably poor. Right. They were uh, supposed to be college students, but they were in their 30s. Right. They had new cars and were not registered at all to any of the local schools and did not keep up with a schedule that would have fit with any legitimate uh, student. Right. Um, the investigation included sending in an undercover agent, Robert Rodriguez. Well done. Rodriguez. <laughs> uh, whose identity Koresh learned, uh, though he chose not to reveal that fact until the day of the actual raid. Oh, he knew he was an agent. Yep. Okay. The ATF had planned their raid for Monday, March 1st, 1993. Okay. With the code name Showtime. <gasps> it's Showtime! <laughs> <laughs> the ATF later claimed that the raid was moved up a day to February 28th, 1993 in response Wasn't to... a leap year then. Mm, no, it wasn't. In response to the Waco Tribune Herald's The Sinful Messiah, which I talked about a second ago. Okay. Um, they actually tried to prevent the publication, but once it got out there, like, we got to move. Okay. The ATF attempted to execute their search warrant on Sunday morning, February 28th. The local sheriff, in audio tape broadcast after the incident, said he was not aware of the raid itself. Okay. So despite being informed that the Branch Davidians knew a raid was coming... The ATF commander ordered that it go ahead anyways, even though their original plan depended solely on reaching the compound without them knowing that it was happening and them getting armed and prepared. Right. So the ATF is like a federal agency. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so any advantage of surprise was lost when a KWTX TV reporter who had been tipped off about the raid asked for directions from a U.S. Postal Service mail carrier uh, on like, hey, how do we get to the Koresh's pound, who act, a compound, who actually happened to be Koresh's brother-in-law. So Koresh then told the undercover ATF agent, Robert Rodriguez, <laughs> that they knew that their raid was coming. Right. Rodriguez had infiltrated the branch uh, and was astonished to find out that his cover had been blown. The agent made an excuse and left the compound. Branch Davidian survivors have written that Koresh ordered selected male followers to begin arming and taking up defensive positions, while the women and children were told to take cover in their rooms. So they were getting ready. Shit, son. Yeah. ATF agents stated that they heard gunshots coming from within the compound, while Branch Davidian survivors claimed that the first shots came from the ATF agents outside. Okay. So it was like, who shot first? You know what I mean? Yeah. They're both arguing on who did. 
A suggested reason may have been an accidental discharge of a weapon, possibly by an ATF agent, causing the ATF to respond with fire from automatic weapons. Other reports claim the first shots were fired by the ATF dog team. What do you mean? Were sent in to kill the dogs on the branch, uh, branch David, uh, Davidian kennel. Mm. What? Yeah. Uh, why? They just went in and killed all the doggies. Because the dogs were going to attack? Like they had them trained Don't, or something? Wouldn't be able to tell you. Just killed all the doggies. Don't do that. I didn't like it. Three helicopters of the Army National Guard were used as an aerial distraction and all took incoming fire during the first shots. <laughs> Look over here. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, we're above you now. No, we can fly. Don't look to your left. Here we come. So during the first shots, Koresh was actually wounded. He was shot in the hand and the stomach. <laughs> come on, bud. During the first shots, like you couldn't last a few minutes. Uh, the first ATF, he took notes from the buddy who jumped off the, the wharf into the three inches of water. <laughs> Wait, should I be running towards the bullets? <laughs> oh, look, a helicopter. What? <laughs> I didn't see the bullets coming. I was looking up. Yeah. Oh, you got me. <laughs> sneaky, sneaky. Sneaky, sneaky. So. <laughs> Siri, we couldn't hear what you said. Go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> the first ATF casualty was an agent who had made it to the west side of the building before he was wounded. Agents quickly took cover and fired at the buildings while the helicopters began their diversion and swept in low over the complex, roughly about 350 feet away from the building. Okay. The Branch Davidians fired on the helicopters and hit them, without obviously injuring the crew. The helicopters immediately stopped the mission and landed on the ground. On the east side of the compound, agents hauled out two ladders and set them against the side of the building. Agents then climbed onto the roof to secure it to reach Koresh's room and the arms storage room as well. Okay. On the west slope of the roof, three agents reached Koresh's window and were crouching beside it when they came under fire. One agent was killed and another wounded. The third agent scampered over the peak of the roof and joined other agents attempting to enter the arms room. The window was smashed, a flashbang stun grenade was thrown in, and three agents entered the arms room. Okay. When another tried to follow them, a hail of bullets penetrated the wall and wounded him. But he was able to reach a ladder and slide to safety. An agent fired his shotgun at Branch Davidians until he was hit in the head by return fired and also killed. Inside the arms room, the agents killed a Branch Davidian and discovered a cache of weapons and then came under a heavy fire. Why is there an arms room? Well, that's that's it, right? Is that they were going there because they were trying to discover all these They knew there was going to be, yeah. Yeah. Uh, As they escaped, the third agent laid down covering fire, killing a Branch Davidian. As he made his escape, he hit his head on a wooden support beam and fell off a roof, but somehow survived. Who? The uh, agent? agent. Okay. Another agent outside provided them with covering fire, but was shot by a Branch Davidian and killed instantly. Dozens of ATF agents took cover, many behind Branch Davidian vehicles, and exchanged fire with the Branch Davidians. The number of ATF wounded increased, and an agent was killed by gunfire from the compound as agents were firing at a Branch Davidian perched on top of the water tower. So kind of like a sniper. Yeah. The exchange of fire continued, but 45 minutes into the raid, the gunfire began to slow down as agents began to run low on ammunition. Shit. The shooting continued for two hours. ATF agents established contact with Koresh and others inside the compound after they withdrew. 
The FBI took command soon after as a result of the deaths of federal agents, placing Jeff Jamar, head of the Bureau's San Antonio field office, in charge of the siege as site commander. Okay. So they screwed, the ATF screwed. Screwed the pooch. And the FBI were like, we got we got step in by us, yeah. So at first, the Davidians had telephone contact with local local news media. Okay. And Koresh gave phone interviews to all the news. The FBI while like this while was they were all under siege. Okay. Yeah. Well, like the fighting ended, but the FBI were like on their doorstep. Right, right, right. And they were hiding in the house. Yeah, a little bit of a break break time. Yeah. So the FBI cut uh, Davidian communication to the outside world. Yeah. For the next fifty one days. Communication with those inside was by telephone yeah. and by a group of 25 FBI negotiators. 25 negotiators? That's how many they brought in. In the first few days, the FBI believed they had made a breakthrough when they negotiated with Koresh an agreement that the Branch Davidians would peacefully leave the compound in return for a message recorded by Koresh, okay. which would be broadcast on national radio. Okay. The broadcast was made. But Koresh then told negotiators that God had told him to remain in the building and wait. Despite this, soon afterwards, negotiators managed to facilitate the release of 19 children, ranging in age from 5 months to 12 years old, without their parents. Just living in the compound. Yeah. They got the kids out. Yeah. Uh, However, 98 people remained in the building. Okay. So that answers your question. There was uh, 117 people living there okay during the siege well minus the ones who got killed sure yeah yes that's right so during the siege the fbi sent a video camera to the branch davidians in the videotape um made by koresh's followers koresh introduced his children and his wives to the fbi negotiators including several minors who claimed to have had babies fathered by koresh koresh had fathered perhaps like 14 other children who stayed with him right So several Branch Davidians made statements in the video. On day 9, March 8th, uh, sorry, Monday, March 8th, the Branch Davidians sent out the videotape to show the FBI that there were no hostages, but everybody was staying inside on their own free will. This video also included a message from Koresh directly. Two of the three water storage tanks on the roof of the main building had been damaged during the initial ATF raid. Okay. So eventually, the FBI cut off all the all of the power and water supply going to the compound. Right. Forcing those inside to survive purely on rainwater. Yeah. And stockpiled military MRE rations. You're going to have to leave. Yeah. They're like yeah. they're they're trying to get them to leave. Yeah. So, despite the increasingly aggressive tactics. Koresh ordered a group of followers to leave. Eleven people left and were arrested as material witnesses, with one person charged with conspiracy of murder. During the siege, several scholars who study apocalypticism, which... Scholars? Yeah. Would we call them scholars? Apocalypticism. So so they study that in religious groups, attempted to persuade the FBI that the siege tactics being used by government agents would only reinforce the impression within the Branch Davidians that they were part of a biblical end of times. That, like, everything that they were doing, they're like, this is just furthering their narrative. This is what we want. Yeah. When we all die, the second coming of Christ will occur. They think that it's the second coming of Christ. Right. Right? That, the, that Satan is coming 
to to kill them with weapons and fire, and they've stripped them all of their resources. Right. And God just, is just testing wait their it will. Out. We have to wait it out. God will save them. The second coming of Christ. This is the apocalypse. We will all die, and we will be here together. Like that's and everything that the government is doing is just reinforcing that belief. Right. Um. So confrontation that had cosmic significance, this would likely increase the chances of a violent and deadly outcome. Yep. Koresh's discussions with the negotiating team became increasingly difficult. According to the FBI, he proclaimed that he was the second coming of Christ and had been commanded by his father in heaven to remain on the compound. Well, if he's the second coming of Christ, whom are they waiting for? Uh, I think they've waited for him, and now he is here. Okay. One week before the April 19th assault... FBI planners considered using sniper rifles just to kill David Koresh. Right. But feared that by killing David Koresh, the rest of the people in the compound would then kill themselves. It Uh, it would cause a mass hysteria, mass suicide. Yeah. So, the final assault on Mount Carmel. The assault took place on April 19th, 1993, 51 days after the initial raid. Yeah. The FBI used explosives to punch holes in the walls of the buildings of the compound. So they can pump in CS gas, tear gas, right, uh, and try to force the Branch Davidians out without harming them. Uh, the stated plan, plan, sorry, called for increasing amounts of gas to be pumped in over two days to increase pressure. Yeah. Officially, no armed assault was to be made. Right. Okay. Loudspeakers were to be used to tell the Branch Davidians that there would be no armed assault and to ask them not to fire back onto the vehicles. Right. According to the FBI, the hostage rescue team uh, agents had been permitted to return any incoming fire, but no shots were fired by FBI agents on April 19th. Okay. When several Branch Davidians opened fire, the FBI hostage rescue team's response was only to increase the amount of gas being used. Right. So when they defended themselves. They just poured more gas. Yeah. At around noon, three fires broke out almost simultaneously in different parts of the building and spread quickly. Oof. Footage of the blaze was broadcast live by television crews. The government maintains the fires were deliberately started by the Branch Davidians. Some Branch Davidian survivors maintained that the fires were accidentally or deliberately started by the assault. By the FBI? Yeah, oh. because of like the gas or because of right. whatever they did. Only nine people left the building during the fire. Okay. The remaining Branch Davidians, including the children, were either burned alive by rubble, suffocated, or shot. Min- shot by who? Mm-hmm. This is going to get bleak now. Okay. Spo- uh, not spoiler, I mean, but like warning. it's been uplifting so far. No. So many were killed by smoke or carbon monoxide inhalation and other causes as fires engulfed the building. Yeah. According to the FBI, Steve Schneider, Koresh's top aide, his, like, right-hand man, shot and killed Koresh and then killed himself. And all 76 people died. A large concentration of bodies, weapons, and ammunition was found in the bunker storage room, which is kind of in their basement. The Texas Rangers arson investigator report assumes that many of the occupants, occupants, sorry, were either denied escape from within or refused to leave until escape was not an option. Oof. It also mentions that the structural debris from the breaching operations on the west end of the building could have been blocked um, as possible escape route through the tunnel system. Wait, what? I'm not sure I understand. 
So on the west end of the building, yeah. part of the escape route could have been blocked by accident by debris, by the fire. Uh, like oh, the oh I see. An independent investigation by two experts from the University of Maryland's Department of Fire Protection Engineering concluded that the compound residents had sufficient time to actually escape the fire if they simply had so desired. Mm. Autopsies of the dead revealed that some women and children found beneath a fallen concrete wall of a storage room died due to those injuries. Just a concrete wall fell on them. Right. Autopsy photographs of other children locked in what appear to be spasmic death poses are consistent with cyanide poisoning, one of the results <gasps> produced by burning CS gas. The U.S. Wait, Depart- wait, what? Oh, oh, when when the tear gas caught fire, it created uh, cyanide poisoning. Cyanide poisoning. Really? Yeah. Uh, so the U.S. Department of Justice report indicated that only one body had traces of benzene, uh, one of the components of solvent-dispersed CS gas, but that the gas insertions had finished nearly one hour before the fire started, and that it was enough time for solvents to dissipate from the bodies of the branch David- uh, Davidians that had inhaled the tear gas. Okay. Autopsy records also indicate that at least 20 branch Davidians were shot including Koresh, as well as five children under the age of 14. Three-year-old Dayland Ghent was stabbed in the chest. The medical examiner who performed the autopsies believed these deaths, deaths were mercy killings by the Branch Davidians trapped in the fire with no escape. The expert retained by the U.S. Office of Special Counsel concluded that many of the gunshot wounds support self-destruction either by overt suicide consensual execution uh, or less likely forced execution yeah but who lit the fires that's the question no one knows they don't know if it was deliberately lit by koresh right uh or if it was an accident from the fbi with the tear gas given i would think given all of the bullets and stabbings and this kind of stuff the fire was just another way out like let's just cause as much mayhem to basically kill us all yeah there's the fact that all three fires started simultaneously was one um but there's a lovely docuseries yeah. that i'm gonna talk about in a second i mean it's not lovely well no 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 i haven't it's, seen it's, it but i'm a, sure it's not lovely you know no it's not joyous it's, it's well done it's good yeah um that at that moment, it's very unclear on how the fire starts. Oh. Because they don't know. They just truly don't know. Right. Right? Uh, the new ATF director, John McGow, criticized several aspects of the ATF raid. Yeah. McGow made the Treasury Blue Book, which is a report on the actual Waco scenario. Yeah. Which is now an official required reading for all new agents. Mm. So, like, we had to learn from this. Yeah, because they went in when they they knew that the compound knew they were coming. Yeah, well, there was that. So yeah. it was a poor execution to begin with. Yeah. A. Their undercover agent sucked. Yeah. Um, they also made a raid or um, a siege last 51 days. They couldn't yeah. resolve it. Yeah. And then by the end of the 51 days, they have exasperated it so much yeah. that almost everybody died. Yeah. So, like, wow. it was a fail on every account. On every account, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the events at Mount Carmel spurred both criminal prosecution and civil litigation. 
On August 3, 1993, a federal grand jury returned a superseding 10-court indictment against 12 of the surviving Branch Davidians. Yeah. The grand jury charged, among other things, that the Branch Davidians had conspired to and aided and abetted in the murder of federal officers and had unlawfully possessed and used various firearms. Checks out. The tragedy in Waco, Texas will be remembered for quite a while. Echoing the devastation that religious-based cults can produce. Yikes. Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols. Do you know who those people are? I think so. They cited the Waco siege. Should I know who they are? No. Well, no, not really. I was just wondering if you did. So they cited the Waco siege as their motivation for the Oklahoma City bombings. In April 19th, 1995. Which was timed to coincide with the second anniversary of the Waco assault. Because they were on the side of the Waco people? Yeah, just like religious cults okay. against government, right. like that kind of thing. Uh, four documentary films have been made about the siege, most memorably uh, being the 2018 docuseries where Koresh is played by Taylor Kish. Who's Taylor Kish? Kitsch. Who's that? Uh, have you seen The Grand Seduction? I have not. Oh. That's the one where they filmed in Newfoundland? First off, great movie. Gordon Pinson did it? Yeah. Gordon yep. Pinson, uh, Brendan Gleeson, who Brendan is uh, Matt Eye Moody. Moody. yeah. So he's in it. Yep. So I met Matt Eye Moody. You I'm, met him? Yeah, and I met Where'd Taylor Kitsch. When I, when I lived in Trinity, when I did that season in... Uh, yeah. Uh, that's when they were filming The Grand Seduction. And they just came out to see a show or something? No. So they were in Bonavista. Yeah. And we were in Trinity. Yeah. And there was one bar, Rockies. Oh. So I played pool with Taylor Kitsch. <gasps> Yeah. Cool. Me me and Justin played with him and his bodyguard, who is a mammoth. <laughs> yeah, I'd only imagine. There's a picture of the four of us. Um, and then I saw Brendan Gleason at um we went to Trinity together, have we? Yes. Yeah, you know the restaurant um that's there by the dock? It's called the Dock Marina. Yes. Yeah. He was eating there and I went and chatted with Brendan Gleason there. You went and chatted with him? Chatted being, Hey Mr. Gleason, I'm Jeff, I'm a huge fan, I'm gonna let you eat your dinner, but Thumbs up. Nice to see you. Yeah. Good luck with the movie. Yeah. I well, yeah. And Taylor yeah. Kitsch, like we spent an evening playing pool with. Right. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. So overall, it's bleak. Yeah, it's real bleak. And unfortunate. Cults are insane. They really, really are. And I think there was a lot of misses from both parties. I mean, obviously. Yes. Obviously, uh, you know, David Koresh and all of all the things that you could say of of the statutory rape and having yeah. 120 women and like that kind of like. But the trick is, how do you reason with a cult, right? It's like, you know, the, all of the um, negotiation stuff. It's like, you can't reason with a man who says, yeah, buys on the second coming of Christ. I'm, I'm literally God's child. I can't leave because God told me not to. I mean, yeah. there's no negotiating with that human. No. Well, if there is, it's an obscure way that we yeah. just haven't discovered yet. But well, yeah. They, um, that doesn't mean, like, all the stuff I just said, like the statutory rape, and, you know, they're just very religious people, and they lived a very strange life, and that's just how they wanted to live their life. Uh, it was all voluntary, except I mean, for the people who were under 18. Who they're not really... religious people. They created their own religion. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, yes, I, I It's guess an insult so. to religion to be like, they're very religious. Like, they're, uh, yes, they're it's, insane. It's, yeah, well, yes. It's yeah. an insult to contemporary religion. That's what I mean. Yeah. 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 Um, but they didn't deserve to die. No. No, Not and and neither way. did the officers. No, the federal agents who went in. Oof. Pretty bleak, eh? Well, on that note, everybody, go listen to your favorite happy song. And here it is. And enjoy. <laughs> no pressure, though. 
Enjoy your break. Jeff, Jeff, that wonderful guy. He'll put you right on the spot. You don't need to ask why, because he's a bit of an ass on whom you can depend to do none of the work and put it all on his friend. Jeff Sims is a dick. Welcome back, oh, we're ladies back, and gentlemen. Baby. Tiff, get out of here. We're live. Yeah, and we're happy. <laughs> happy, 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 happy. I'm a major key. No, like me, like me, like me, like me. I'm a major key. What is it from the producers? Lick me, touch me, hold me, kiss me. Kiss me, hold me, touch me. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, the producers. Yeah, so I'm not going to do any of those things to you. Well... <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. So, Evan, tell me something. Well, I'm going to explain <laughs> to you the invigorating topic that is the price of gas. Um. So, it's actually, it is a little bit invigorating because we've all wondered this. Yes. For a while, and perhaps you have too. Why does gas jump around so much? Jump around. You know? Jump around. Jump up, jump up, jump down. Jump. Some some aspects, oh God. Yes, take your time. Some aspects of this are obvious. Where you live matters. What's going on in the world? And the price of a barrel of oil. A barrel of oil. But why? Why do they measure in terms of barrels? Army hearty, how much of her a barrel of oil? They always say barrels. I know, but it sounds like very Pirates of the Caribbean. I agree. All I can picture is like Donkey Kong. Yes. And just like throwing his barrels filled to the brim with oil. Mm-hmm. And like Mario's doing super well. He keeps dodging all the barrels. <laughs> like What's D- Donkey Kong been doing after Nintendo kind of stopped? Right. <laughs> it's like DK uses more barrels, creating scarcity, so the price goes up. But yes. like if, if he hits Mario the first time, that's like he doesn't use as many barrels. So then the price of oil goes down. Huge yeah. surplus in barrels. Yep. So it's decided then? So that's why, yeah. Yeah. Um, so to find out more, I headed to the website http colon forward slash forward slash www.dummies.com forward slash home dash garden forward slash car dash repair forward slash fuel dash system forward slash how dash gas dash prices dash r dash determined forward slash. I don't know if you've been there. Can you say it one more time and slower for our listeners? I don't know if you've been there, but it's a very popular site. Um, But all jokes aside... I went to dummies.com. I didn't know that was a place. I it, will now visit there quite frequently. It'll be your first stop shop. <laughs> I'm the homepage. Yeah. <laughs> Just you with your hand under your chin like a Walmart like school picture <laughs> in, in overalls yeah, with yeah. your shirt off. Um, <laughs> the <laughs> Uh, so these are the four main factors in determining the price of gas at the pumps, according to dummies.com. Number one, taxes. About 30, 35% of pump price is taxes. Number two, distribution and marketing costs. 9% of your pump price. Also, can we talk about marketing costs when it comes to gas? Okay. Other than them just being I mean, like, we will. My gas. Mine every every time gas. you take a voice, it's that weird slug woman from Monsters Inc. Yeah, it's whenever I have someone Mike who's Wazowski. very unfruitful. Yeah, like you, someone who like you don't like. What's her name? Roz. Ross. Ross. And she, or Roz. 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 And she Roz. ends up being like she's head of the weird yellow people thing. Yeah. Yeah. But she's she's pretty pretty. She's impl- undercover. Yeah. 
Um, number three, refining costs, seventeen percent of pump price. That's I would thought I would have thought that would have been the the most influencing piece. The most influencing piece is number four, the price of crude oil, mm. which is forty percent of pump price. What so, about prude oil? Um, prude oil is uninvolved because they're too worried they're going to be judged. Get sticky. <laughs> so these numbers vary from country to country, but this is the case in Canada, according to the Government of Canada website. Gas prices are <laughs> which actually- is dummies.com. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Got him. Gas prices are actually overseen by the Competition Bureau. There's a Bureau of Competition. Wow. A government agency, and while they do not regulate the price, they make it clear that in order to ensure Canadian businesses and consumers see the benefits of a competitive sector, the Bureau, and I quote, does not hesitate to take action when there is evidence of anti-competitive behavior. Ooh. Which is like the most aggressive Canadian sentence that's ever happened. Yeah. It's like, we will not hesitate to take action. We will write them a heavily worded letter. If you're not playing fair there, bud, we'll make sure that... That everybody around us is playing fair game. Could Make you sure some... uh, bring the price down a smidge there? Yeah. Uh, no, no. We're stupid for suggesting it. Here's $20. <laughs> sorry, eh? I'm sorry there, bud. Go buy yourself some $20 worth of maple syrup, eh? You're sounding really Irish. You're 10 ply, bud. <laughs> I ate today, me leprechaun lucky charms. <laughs> don't, eat, don't eat them all at once. They contain too much sugar. Arr. <laughs> Canadian to Irish to leprechaun or to pirate. Hmm. That's the trajectory. Um, so obviously the laws of supply and demand are are involved. Yes. Of which we are intimately knowledgeable, Jeff. And we are. And they come into play. Uh, prices increase when demand for a certain product is more than what is available in the market. Hmm. For instance, the demand for gas increases during the summer months as we all go on road trips and just as a country drive more. Sure. Makes sense. Yep. This results in higher prices, creating what is called a seller's market. Summer season ends, starts to snow in Newfoundland, because it's the summer. Immediately. <laughs> um, demand decreases, gas inventories increase, and the price falls as the buyer's market emerges. <laughs> Should I start talking in, like, news reporter inflections? Sorry? Should I start talking in, like, news reporter inflections? Absolutely. When, when you're talking as about the buyer's gas market emerges, as the buyer's market emerges. <laughs> Number one, taxes. This is the second largest factor in the sale of gas. Both federal and provincial governments apply taxes to the sale of gas. Unlike many of the other factors, gas taxes are set by government policy, so they aren't changing on a dime. They're not the reason you're seeing the gas prices jump up and down. They jump up and down, up and down. They are unaffected by competition or supply and demand. It takes government action to change them, which does happen, but is a pretty significant event when it does. So each province sets a gasoline tax. In Alberta, it's 23.616 cents. Newfoundland, it's 38.202 cents. Why? Quebec, 48 cents. Montreal, 69 cents. Wow. Yep. Uh, I don't know why. That's just, it's up to the province. Mm, Muskrat Falls. <laughs> Um, on top of this gas tax, there's GST, goods and services tax, set federally at 5%. Everyone pays it on everything, with the exception of basic groceries. No tax on basic groceries. You're a basic grocery. <laughs> Thank you. You're a beer head of lettuce. <laughs> so I can feed a whole family, and I'm uh, and healthy. I don't know why I found that so funny. And then to this, we add provincial sales tax. Now, not everyone has this. 
Alberta, British Columbia, Manitoba, Northwest Territories, Nunavut, Quebec, Saskatchewan, and Yukon just have that 5% GST. No provincial tax. Ontario, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI, and Newfoundland have HST, harmonized sales tax. Uh, so the GST is harmonized with the PST, provincial sales tax. In Ontario, it is 8%, making a total of 13% HST. And for the us in the Atlantic bubble, it's 10%, making a total of 15% HST. So that's added on. There's some additional taxes as well, not applicable to all places. For instance, BC actually charges a carbon tax of 6.67 cents per liter on gasoline as of July 1st, 2012. Oh. Just like, let's help the environment out, charge some extra tax. But like... Do they think that's going to force people to buy gas less? I think probably they use it to... Use the funds then use the to, funds fund to fund eco-friendly things. Exactly. Okay. I would imagine. Um, so then on to number two, distributing and marketing costs. Easy to understand, difficult to calculate. So again, about 9% of the total pump price, and this is the cost of transporting gas from the refinery to the wholesaler or service station. So Which I can see being... Uh, an issue in Newfoundland or yeah. if you're going from like inland Canada because we have such a vast land it's, it's Absolutely. quite 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 anywhere quite remote yeah um so obviously the change is based on physical distance from the refinery the further you go the more expensive it is to get the gas to that location sure number 3 we have refining costs this is the process of transforming the crude oil into various products used by consumers like gas diesel um airline fuel Jet, jet engine fuel. Sure. Um, that costs money. Number four, price of crude oil. And this is the largest component. This is why on the news, they're constantly telling us the price of gas has changed. Because the price of the crude oil keeps changing. And given that it makes up 40% of the price, a little bit of change goes a long way. Yeah. Uh, crude oil is a globally traded com commodity. So its price is a reflection of the global supply of oil and demand around the world. Sure. Not just in our province, not even in our country, but no. in the world itself. Yes. The price is set in U.S. dollars and varies depending on the type of crude being sold. Some are easier to refine and therefore more expensive to purchase because the cost is less later. Uh, you're getting a higher quality oil to begin with. Sure. Uh, apparently, despite being a major producer of crude oil, 5% globally, Canada does not produce enough oil to influence global prices. So those are the four factors affecting the total pump price, but there are loads of reasons why those four factors can fluctuate. Do you know what? I think, um, <clears throat> just as a pause, Yes. I think doing a topic on point A to point Z of the moment we drill into the ground till the moment I start my car. Yes. Like how... Like the oil is taken out, how it's refined, how it's used, how it's changed to be, like you said, jet oil or sort of like jet engine fuel yeah. or diesel or gasoline or like mixed gas. Like there's there, there's many different, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, ways. <laughs> ways the crude oil is used. Different thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. Combustion. Combustion agents. Sure. Listen to you go. Ways. Um, <laughs> Ways. <laughs> Mike Wazowski. So in the marketing world, gas stations get some say. We know we're talking cents, but this falls into marketing and distribution. Stations have the ability to raise or lower their price to a certain degree. The amount of leeway the stations themselves have are regulated by the government. But often this is a factor of why you can drive downtown and pay three cents less 
for gas than you can like at the gas station next to my house. Um, those few cents make a difference to people who are cons- consistently filling up their tank. Yep. Hence, everyone driving to Galway to fill up at Costco. 12 cents less. Exactly. 12 cents. I know. That's a lot. It's a lot. Gas stations typically post their prices on giant signs outside their source. Hashtag marketing. Yeah, since consumers are very sensitive to price. This will often make gas stations match the price of other stations in their area. So, for instance, where we are right now at my house, there are two, one, two, yeah, two gas stations within half a kilometer of us right now. Half a, yeah. Like, let well, 0.25 of a kilometer. Yeah. Even. They will always be the same rate because yep. they're competing, right? Yep. Um, so, yeah, often, often when they're in the same place, gas stations will match prices. If one lowers by a cent per liter to get customers in, the other station has the ability to do the same. It's not illegal to do that unless the competing gas stations agree to charge the same price. It's illegal if they decide to? Because then they could purposely make the market higher in that area. Oh, yes, yes, I understand. Right? Like, they won't be competitive. Yeah. Um, but the goal is <clears throat> not so much the marketing of gas, but to get the consumer to purchase items from their store. Goods on the shelves, car washes, etc. Yes. Which they'll get if you're pumping your gas there, right? Yep. If a gas station pushes their costs too high, they miss out on the purchases of everything else. Yep. It's why Costco can afford to put their gas price so low. Yes. Um, one would think by having their prices 8, 10, 12 cents cheaper than everyone else, they would lose money. But thousands of people go to just our Costco every day. That's literally their entire business structure. Yeah. So yeah. they're like, everyone's coming here. Mm-hmm. If their price was the same price as everywhere else, they'd be like, eh, well, I'll just get gas on my way home or whatever. But if their price is so much lower, like, well, we're going to Costco anyway. So yeah. thousands of people are filling up there every day because it's cheaper and they're already going. Yeah. Right? The uh, Amazon was once criticized for doing similar things. Right. Like selling things under cost yeah. or under uh, appreciated cost in order to retain different types of business. Yeah. And they said, like an analogy was, they used to sell a $1 bill for 90 cents. Right. Like that was the expression that they made. Right. But they were like, you know, yeah, certain items they will take a loss on yeah. to draw people in to, to gain on else. products that yeah. have a larger margin. Yeah. Right. That's in it's a great marketing strategy, but also horrible. Um and also the great thing with Costco is, and I don't know if everybody knows this, but you can pump on either side. You don't have to wait in the side. That your car is on, like your gas tank is on. Oh, yeah, you, the hose is long. But people don't know that, hey, uh, but people don't get it or something. Like, they'll still wait. I'm like, no, 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 it doesn't matter. Go to either one. Yeah. Just oh, giddy up. Okay. Um, but yeah, it costs money to transport gas to the gas stations. Um, the more remote, the more secluded, if you will, the harder it is to get gas to you, the more expensive your gas is. So do you mean secluded or do you mean... The other <laughs> word that you confuse Ruby. I probably mean the other word, but I was doing it for humorous purposes for your own personal So do you actually mean secluded? Do I? Well, read the sentence one more time. The more remote, the more secluded. Yes, the answer is yes. Secluded equals remote. Great. Versus sheltered. (laughs) Well, not sheltered. I don't want to... No, not sheltered. Secluded as in like away from everything. Exactly. Secluded. Great. Nailed it. Um, As well, you'll notice larger centers have cheaper gas prices. Major cities, Halifax, Toronto, Ottawa, will usually have cheaper gases than surrounding areas because they sell more gas. Because they're a large center. They can charge less, still make a profit. Sure. So that's another factor contributing. The number of gas stations can change the price. Or the types of gas stations. If you've got numerous companies on the same strip, they will all be making an effort to keep competitive pricing and will usually result in lower prices. One lowers, the other one follows. 
Interestingly, the fact that gas prices change quickly and rapidly is an indication that competition is working. It's a good thing, right? Because people are constantly adjusting to keep the market competitive. Yeah. In the spring, gas prices can be seen to increase due to refinery turnarounds. So the oil refineries basically do spring cleaning. They carry out inspections. They replace or upgrade requirements um, as well as, I think that should be equipment. I don't know why it says requirements. Anyway, as well as changing the recipe of the gas to prevent it from evaporating. I don't know what that means. I remember now that I meant to look that up. Change the recipe for the gas. What do you... Don't know. I don't know. But that's, that's part of my suggested topic from A to Z. From and the moment they drill it. Up to you, bud. Um, so because during that time, the refineries aren't producing as, producing as much gas because they're like shutting certain things down to clean it. Mm-hmm. Supply goes down, price goes up. That's another factor affecting. Uh, on the global scale, the price of crude oil can be affected drastically by a variety of things. Tell me. Since crude oil and gas are scarce resources that must be extracted and refined, they're vulnerable to environmental factors. Hurricanes, forest fires, for instance, can disrupt the extractions of crude and even damage refineries and slow down distribution, Mm -hmm. depending on how long it takes the refinery to get back up and running and how significant the refinery is to the global market. So can drastically affect pricing. Just a, just a side note. Please do. <clears throat> From living in Newfoundland, the the idea of an oil refinery yes. is like an oil tanker like out on the water. That's not a refinery. That's a drill. That's them getting the crude oil out of the ground. And then they, they, they refine sh- it inland. In another place. Oh, uh, okay. Because when you're like forest fire, I'm like, where is there oil? Water and sand. Like I think of deserts and, yes. and ocean. Yeah, huge like I don't, Middle Eastern. I don't. Yeah. yeah, I don't. I don't like picture us digging oil or mining oil or, or drilling oil, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Like in Minnesota. No. Do you know what I mean? It's in the middle of the water. Yeah. Or in the middle of the desert. Right. But am I? Is that a just an exaggeration or a, no? I think it's fairly accurate. I mean, ac- you know, Alberta has a fair amount. Offshore, of, though. I mean, offshore. There's no offshore of Alberta. Don't Alberta, they? There's no, there's no water in Alberta. What do you, what do you mean? I mean, there's water in Alberta. But there's no like. There's no they're, water. They're not near an ocean. You have to travel through another province to get to the ocean. I don't know that. What do you mean you don't know that? Think of Canada I on a map. I took theology. You took geography. Yeah, but picture a map of Canada. I'm picturing it. So BC yeah. on the water. Yep. Saskatchewan, Manitoba. Alberta. Oh, okay. okay None okay. of them are touching water. I will tell you, when you said Alberta, I pictured BC. I, that makes more sense. Yeah. Then surely, yes. Yes. But no, not Alberta. Um, so I guess in the ground in Alberta for some reason. Um, don't know why. But for instance, um, just talking about environmental factors. In 2017, Hurricane Harvey destroyed parts of the Gulf Coast and Texas refining hubs. Uh, it shut down its oil platforms, refineries, and pipelines. Oh, and- I guess Texas. Well, Texas is kind of like a deserty yeah and also it says refinery dry. so maybe they didn't actually get the oil there maybe they yeah, shipped maybe it up maybe i'm just making a vast assumption maybe anyway huge reduction in production and reduction in production i like that reduction production but of course supply doesn't stop during these times in an event of emergency in fact it may increase because if like they use lose power Other or whatever stuff, yeah. then they're also gonna, like everybody's using a generator which they need gas for um, so therefore, these poor people struggling through a devastating hurricane or fires now have to deal with more expensive gas. And Texas is only a small percentage of the global oil market. 
when things happen in the Middle East, things get real scary. So Iraq is the second highest export of crude oil in the Organizations of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or the OPEC. The OPEC controls about 80% of the world's oil reserve. When the U.S. invaded Iraq, 80%. When the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, President George W. argued that the invasion was a vital step in the war on terror by removing dictator Saddam Hussein. But many congressmen opposed the invasion, arguing that the goal was to control Iraq's oil refineries. Mm -hmm. Conflicts in the Middle East, such as the presence of ISIS and the Iraqi government changing control of some of the country's oil fields and refineries, always causes global concerns of crude oil supply. Because if the government shifts, like, what's going to happen? Will the exports be the same? We need all that oil desperately. I think that's another great topic. The war on terrorism. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In the past few years, conflicts in Syria, Yemen, and South Sudan have drastically disrupted global supply. The COVID-19 pandemic saw a huge oil crisis. Don't get me started on the COVID. I know. It's a hard goal. Mm. In March of 2020, oil prices fell to the lowest level they had in 20 years. Usually falling oil prices are a good thing. Refiners buy the crude oil cheap. They sell it for more expensive. And consumers are getting cheaper oil, so they buy more oil. Yep. Which, or gas, whatever, which has never occurred to me. I don't like drive more when gas is cheaper. I just drive as much as I drive when I drive. Yeah, but I filled up both of our cars, like mine and Catherine's cars, like when we had no need to, like three I times. See. Right. When I got to. But what do, you, when you, what do you mean when you had no need to? If the car so was like, empty, you had a need to. No, but it never got anywhere near it because oh, I was kept afraid up. that the ah, price would, drop, right. would go up again. So I got to like three quarters of a tank right. and would fill it back up again. Oh. Any opportunity I had to buy. Uh, gas, gas at that uh, price, I did. Like, I filled up two jerry cans, toss it in the shed for the, uh, I see. For the chimichanga. Yeah, I never think about that. I just, like, wait until my gas is, my tank is well, like, I you bit. are going to stop. The car will roll down a hill <laughs> if you don't put gas in this. Yeah. I, I got bit because I filled up twice, did that irrational, like, three-quarter fill. Yeah. And then... I was getting close to like needing gas. Like I was yeah. down towards the empty. I was like, nah, I'll get it tomorrow. But God, we went from like alert level two to three or four, and there was like thirty cents more. I should have done other, like the, the other, day before. The other way around, you mean? Yes, the other way around. Yeah. Um. So yeah, but the world was actually the issue with the COVID nineteen thing is the world was in a dual supply and demand shock. So too much drilling produced a surplus. And the coronavirus led to a historic drop in consumption. So surplus was, or the supply was very high, and then the demand dropped insanely low. So consumption of jet fuel fuel plunged seventy five percent in like literally two days. Just like planes just sat. Yeah, exactly. Looks like no one can travel globally. Yeah. So it was like, okay, there goes all of the jet fuel. Uh, gas in the U.S. dropped below one dollar per gallon in some places. Margins actually fell into a negative territory for some refineries. Like, think about that. That's a gallon, not a liter. We do no, things like by gallon. a liter. Yeah. Now, their gas is cheaper in general. Yes, but um, but gallon. once you once you can once you put the exchange rate on, apparently they're I've read that the prices are actually pretty comparable. Um, but the average refinery was actually losing money on every gallon of gasoline produced at that point. Um, some refineries just had to close entirely, which does result in the price coming back up to a degree because there's less supply. But that doesn't help the company that had already shut down to yes, create the more supply. Yeah. Um, finally, Jeff, did you know that you have an important role in this whole thing? Me? You do indeed, Jeff. I bet I do. 
Aside from being a consumer and purchasing gasoline... I thought you were going to say, besides being a handsome man. That was my next sentence, actually. Good, go ahead. Aside from being a consumer and purchasing gasoline and being a handsome man... Thank you. It's up to you to help crack down on the price-fixing cartels. <gasps> Did you know they existed? No. I didn't either. They're, it feels a little drastic as I tell you what it is. It's like, they're not really cartels. But the government is not allowed to set gas prices. However, they can set price floors and ceilings. Yes. So they can say this is the minimum or maximum you can charge for gas. And that's like up to um, provinces um, in Canada. Um, but there are numerous instances where a price-fixing cartel has intervened in this. And this is illegal behavior. In the majority of situations, this means that gas stations in an area pressure one or more other stations to charge the same price. Or gas stations in an area come to an agreed-upon price. But that agreed-upon price is higher than it should be. But rather, So they get rid of the competition in the market. I understand. Right? Um, it's very difficult to catch people in these acts. This is where you come in, Jeff. Ooh. The Bureau of Competition, actually, on their website, is like, if you have anything to say about this, call this number. It's we the will Crime act. Stopper sign really that you is. see in the Neighborhood Watch crew. Yes. Um, in 2005, through a Victoriaville newspaper, uh, the Bureau learned that a gas retailer was being pressured by his competitors to increase his prices. Through an investigation, the Bureau uncovered a successful proce- uh, and successfully prosecuted rather, to a major price-fixing cartel operating in Victoriaville, Thetford Mines, and Sherbrooke, Quebec. All of them just like, there was a bunch of business owners who were like, let's charge this, and then no one can go anywhere else for cheaper gas because there won't be any, and we'll all make more money. It's so, super shady. So who, it's just the gas stations who benefit from that directly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's the small business owners. Um, so like there was situations where Ultramar, because the, but the, the la- larger companies will have to pay out too. I'm sure they then fire the employees, Sure. but the larger companies have to pay out. So like there was big settlements with Ultramar, big settlements with Suncor. So Jeff, in conclusion, if you see something, say something. If I see something, say something. It's the rule. The country is depending on you to keep gas prices in line in our great so nation. So it's my responsibility to do that. Of Canada. I'm just going to Canada. I'm just going to go around saying that people at Ultramar and Irving are being sneaky little devils and they're changing the prices. certainly can. But a lot of factors. So, like, when, you know, I've always, like, I always wonder, like, when I left here and drove downtown, the gas is, like, four cents cheaper. I was like, why? Yeah. Why is that? So, in that case, it's like, you know, I'm sure the, the, it's not it doesn't have anything to do with the distance from the refinery. No. You're point two of a kilometer, it's not four cents. So that's that must be a market situation. Yeah. There well, mustn't be many other gas stations in that area. Yeah. I mean for them to compete against. Right. And and like and likewise, the other gas station, like downtown, there's what? There's the Ultramar on the corner by the Delta. That's like it. And there's the North Atlantic down when you almost get to Waterford Bridge Road. Yes. Yeah, so and I bet they're the same price. Probably, but right? they're but they're the only ones closest to like the, they serve the entire downtown. Geez, like Kemma Road or like Roadwalk Lane. Are the closest ones. Yeah. I is can't there, there's not even a gas station on Roadwalk Lane, is there? There is, yep. Oh, never been there. Yep. Um, but yeah. So, <laughs> I've never been to that gas station, I mean. Oh. Um, but uh, yeah, so like, there's just so many factors, right? And like, I've always wondered too, like why when you drive across the island, does the gas just like keep getting lower? Because St. John's is the larger center. And presumably... The oil comes off the marine Atlantic 
No, it doesn't. I'm sure. I it mean, doesn't. I'm it sure the probably, distance between like Harbor Grace and St. John's isn't affecting the price that much. I mean, the truck got to drive and burn its gas. I mean, like, I yes, I guess, but like, but not like by not to much. Truly influence, no. Yeah. Um. But yeah, all these factors. The, yeah, the global ones are the scariest. The like, global that's, ones are the ones that like because that's what affects the crude oil. Yes, that's what affects like well, like the pandemic. Like when the yeah. pandemic happened, we all could have assumed. Like you know yeah. all of the transit stuff, but like it's yeah. it's the big stuff, like how how that happens. But as much as we love ninety nine cent gas, I would rather there not be a global pandemic. Well, well, not even that. Just like that is so bad for the economy globally that like it got to come up. And I guess half of it comes from like why can't it just be ninety nine cents? Just like cut costs. I guess inflation. Well, they, how, what do you mean cut costs? The costs are the costs. No, it costs so much. Like the refinery costs are what they are, right? the 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 cost that it takes to make the crude oil come out of the ground is a cost that it is, it is. No, I mean yes, you you are correct in your statement, but a lot of it is arbitrary. What do you mean? I mean like so the company. I think this will go back to our topic of like A to Z of how the oil gets drilled from the ground. But like you're really hot on the tip about this. I think it's a great topic. I just don't know it. And I think that's why. Like, <laughs> Okay, great. They could have like a little needle and a syringe and they're just pulling it out of the ground and then they're like, God only knows, and Donkey Kong's flicking the barrel from the boat to the other area. Injecting the syringe. That's how he got so big. He just injects himself with oil. He goes home at night and just... <laughs> Oof. Diddy Kong. Um, I don't but know, like... did he? What? I don't know, did he? <laughs> Anyway, I just think there's a lot of moving parts, and it's very interesting. It is very interesting. Indeed. Anyways, folks, here's another brilliant episode. As always, please go to our Facebook page, Instagram, follow, like, share. Uh, have a look at our recent posts. We just put up a couple of posts. Um, I'm not sure if we mentioned it this episode that we have continued with our guest Series. When we say continue, I mean it hasn't started yet. Yes, it has. Catherine and Tiffany were on an episode, but they weren't guests. They were. They were the beginning of the guest series. Were they? A hundred percent. Did they announce that they were? A hundred percent. Oh, because they're not technically a guest. Means they are. like We're here and they're a guest. We were like not there. I guess it was a podcast takeover. It was a takeover. Yeah, but then is... Catherine then joined us as a guest. This is true. Yes. So it is a continuation. Yeah, okay. Sure. Um, we have three guests joining us in the upcoming. We have Leah McDonald, who is a big fan of the podcast. April 23rd. April 23rd. Next we, week. It is next week's episode. Yep. yep. It's a great time. It's a great time. Leah she, explains autism and uh, and from the perspective of an autistic person. And she's just brilliant. She has so much knowledge. And also, she what I love, too, that she said that she's learned things. And I was like, yeah. yeah I love that's that. That's the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then we have uh, Peter McDonald. Who is really? coming on in May. I, May 18th. Not 100% sure. We'll confirm the date. Uh, and he is going to talk about an interesting topic indeed. 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 And I... The Church, oh, of, the church of Scientology. Scientology. Yes, I remember it. Just I thought you were just trying to build it up. No, I forgot for a second. Absolutely. Scientology. Yeah. Um, so it'll be exciting. Yeah. And then we have um, Katie Yetman. Longtime listener, longtime fan of the podcast. Yes, and she is Catherine's best friend. And she is going to talk about the conspiracy and the mysterious death of Jean Benet Ramsey. I'm very excited. It's horrible. Yeah, well, but, yes. But I'm very excited because I'm a murderino. That's a weird thing. It sounds like a Pokemon. 
A murderino is what murderino. the it's like how we call people splainers or whatever. Like the yeah. people who listen to my favorite murder are yeah. called murderinos. Do you think murderinos are murderers to be? Like are what? Murderers to be? No, not at all. Someone who romanticizes people who kill people? Not at all. There has to be a a percentage of people who fantasize and romanticize murders. I'm sure there are, but that's not what murderinos are. No, not exclusively. The whole, there's a lot of murderinos, Jeff. I don't know if you know this. And if they do feel that way, you're going to be the first target. Giddy up. <laughs> when you're ready. I've got my arsenal of weapons <laughs> on my compound. So, um, yes, like I said, please go like, share, follow, and all that kind of fun stuff. And as well, if you would like to write and review, you know where you can do it. It's on Apple Podcasts. Please do it there. If you have a topic you'd like for us to explain, please email us at info.splainin at gmail.com. We hope you learned something this week. And if you didn't, there's always next week. I have a BMW. Yes, how'd you pay for it? Cash up front. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Private dancer, dancer for money. <laughs>